came to realize that what started out as a natural disaster became a man-made disaster. We cannot control the natural disaster, but what we can do is control our response. Have you ever wondered whether disasters are actually natural? If so, you're in the right place. Hello and welcome. My name is Jason von Medding. I'm Xenia Chmutina. And I'm Darian Alexander-Williams. This is Disasters Deconstructed, a podcast where we examine why disasters really happen. Today's episode is part of season four. Thank you for tuning in. Okay, welcome back everybody to Disasters Deconstructed. Hey, Xenia. Hey, Jason. How are you doing? Pretty good. Just um, coming to the end of the semester. It's exciting. Some more teaching to do. But we are almost there. Almost there. Woohoo! But you know what? It's actually, it's been, I mean, it's been a crazy semester. I think everyone's just like exhausted. Mm. But I was so excited with these events that we attended, you and I attended, you know, for two weeks that were organized by Loughborough University about Paulo Freire. It was amazing, wasn't it? I know, right? I didn't get to go to them all, so I'm hoping for the recordings of the ones I missed. Yeah, I think there will be recordings. I'm not sure. I've emailed them to ask. But I just, I I absolutely loved how they brought so many speakers together, you know, who were not just kind of scholars of Freire, um, but who were people who kind of really engaged with practices and learnings. And I love how they unpacked the ideas of hope and dialogue and kind of empathy, right, and humility and why all of this matters for humanity and how we all can use it, not just kind of in pedagogy, but just generally in our life. And I, I keep thinking about it. Wouldn't it be amazing if much of our learning was kind of built around hope and humility? I know, right? Um Totally agree. It's it's something I keep coming back to um, in a lot of conversations in the mm-hmm. last month, probably because I've been attending some of the Freire events, um, but also rereading Pedagogy of the Oppressed recently mm-hmm. um, and just thinking about diff- like one of the things that we talk about quite frequently on the podcast is about how we engage with um, each other and with um, the so-called vulnerable and um, with communities, um, ways of doing research. And I think we have so much to learn from the praxis that Freire talks about, um, which is based in, in ideas of liberation. Um, mm-hmm. And I think so much of what we we do is is not based in liberation or in humanist praxis, but it's humanitarian. And that's something that I, I really picked up hmm. on my second reading of pedagogy um, yeah. was the the fact that our field is broadly focused on um, humanitarian action rather than humanist action. Absolutely. And I guess we all, what we also don't appreciate in disaster studies is the kind of the power of dialogue just because mm. we do humanitarian rather than humanist, right? Mm. Um, and it's, it seems to me the more I think about Freire and just generally the kind of the, you know, the, the discourse around political imagination and perhaps kind of radical thinking, right? It seems like the dialogue is central to change because it really allows us to unpack and maybe appreciate each other's differences, but without 
referring to inequality if we really listen to each other. Yeah, and it's it's like um, central to this part of this half of the season when we're focusing on the global south. Freire's philosophies are so influential in movement building and in ways of seeing the world and being in the world in the global south. And although sometimes in in the global north and in universities, um, you know, his ideas have shaped the people's careers, right? And uh, they have kind of used his ideas to further different intellectual aims. I think Freire's intent was to contribute to the organization of the oppressed, right? Right. And I guess we will refer to this to an extent um, when we're talking to Balan in this episode. Even though we do talk a lot about the urban environment and cities on Disasters Deconstructed, we've never really got into a deep conversation about this topic. Absolutely. And this is sort of unavoidable, an unavoidable topic, right? Um, we need to talk about cities when we talk about disasters. And so today we're really, really excited to welcome Belen Demesson to the podcast. Belen, welcome. Hi, thank you, Jason. Thank you, Xenia, for having me. So Belen is an architect and an urban designer, and she's currently working at the Pontificia Universitat Católica del Peru. And Belen is also about to start her PhD at Durham in the UK. Yay, exciting. Yes, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, so Belen, welcome to the show. There's so much that we want to talk with you about. Um, but let's start with um, a topic that we've spoken about quite a lot in the podcast, sometimes in a very critical way, um, resilience. So maybe you can start us off by, by talking us through what you see as the relationships between resilience, urbanism, and perhaps inequalities. Um, sure. I think, well, the first question that we ask is uh, resilience to what? Well, normally mm. we discuss uh, the resilience to natural phenomena, to uh, earthquakes, climate change, etc., but I think it's also, um, especially under the current circumstances, uh, a good chance to broaden up uh, the discussion to also include disease. And in Latin America, we have a whole long history of resilience to disease with cholera outbreaks, mm -hmm. uh, now with COVID-19, um, and also with uh, conflicts, uh, the Shining Path, what we're seeing right now in Central America as well. Uh, so there's a variety of, of situations of hazards and, and risks that uh, include way more than just the natural phenomena. And uh, what we see, in, going back to your question on inequalities, um, I think that ingrained social, political, and even uh, spatial inequalities and injustices uh, are deeply correlated to our ability to be resilient or not, or our vulnerability um, against this phenomena, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. um, in urbanism, um, we see then the connection not only of like social, political, economic dynamics, but the role that space, territory, uh, urban space, and even architecture plays in reproducing uh, vulnerabilities and risks, and therefore our ability to cope with disasters. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the main weaknesses of urbanism then is that, uh, or urban planning and urban design in general, is that we tend to focus on the resilience of the built environment towards yeah. state hazards. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think more and more now we're seeing that the main subject of urbanism has always been people, right? So mm-hmm. people-centered mm-hmm. approaches. So it's how then space can propel society to be more resilient uh, towards these unforeseen circumstances. Mm. So how do you transform the built environment to ensure that the living, both human and non-human, are resilient to to change? And and that working in, in multiple scales, once again, from like the very domestic and local um, architectural elements to the whole urban system and even the territory. Mm. And so if we're thinking about the context of um, disasters, it often, like the conversations about what a, what a city should, should be like or develop like um, comes up in a post-disaster context. You know, and, and we hear slogans like build back better and so on. Um, and so like what Ksenia and I have talked before on the show with, with different, different people and certainly in our own conversations and some of the work that we're doing about the importance of focusing on how risk is recreated in a post disaster context. And that is like, that's like the, the normal is to recreate the existing patterns, you know, and to recreate the problems that we face. So, like, do you have any thoughts on that post-disaster context and, um, like, the recreation of inequalities and um, unjust systems in that context? Um, yes, and, and, and I agree. And it's not even just a matter of recreating uh, risks, but also many times, in many cases, making them worse. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and from, from an architectural or designy perspective, I think that there's a component there that's rarely talked about, uh, which is like the symbolic dimensions of inequality and how, how spatial design can be a violent factor that reproduces and reinforces this inequality, mm-hmm. right? So, uh, you deem certain groups being undeserving of good design. So reconstruction many times originates social housing, which is Pure quality, poor quality, or uh, that's far away from from the city and completely breaks any societal ties, economic ties, where people they basically become camps or ghettos. Mm. Um, so I think then, really, how do you rethink reconstruction in a way that's dignified, not only like in terms of, of real transformations that are needed on on our lifestyles in general, but like how then they don't reproduce inequalities of power in society. You know, I, I I have more questions about it and I think we'll come back to it um, in a minute. But before we talk about you know further about inequalities i want to um just go back to the um, way we think about sort of spatial design because recently we've seen quite a lot of 
I guess, research, you know, and conversations about feminism and spatial design, right? Feminism and urban planning. And in fact, you and I, we kind of met because of the project, right? Because of our conversations on resilience and gender in the context of disasters and urbanism. So how do you think feminism have influenced our discourse on urbanism? Has there been a positive impact? Um, have we seen positive impact? Um, yes, uh, I think what we're seeing now with feminist urbanism uh, is discussing how our cities have been basically been designed from a male perspective, actually from mm. like a certain privileged group of males. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's all about productivity, competitivity, uh, which completely uh, renders invisible care or reproductive activities, which are mm. in many, many cases carried out by women, are usually unpaid, um, and are increasingly becoming more and more privatized or individualized, as, as they happen in the domestic realm. Um, and I think it's really interesting what we're seeing now, and, and, and it's getting also a lot of strength during COVID, is, is the idea that's been pushed by feminist urbanism, uh, that in the promotion of the collectivization of care activities. Mm. So it's not only a matter of, you know, uh, claiming that men should be taking more care about care activities, uh, but actually that, that society as a whole uh, should be facilitating those activities. And then for that, I think urban space, uh, again, uh, needs to provide those spaces and platforms where that collectivization can happen. So from the very local, in nurseries uh, and in community kitchens, for instance, to a broader uh, metropolitan scale, what we're seeing now with, with taking care of our uh, health uh, caregivers, right? So nurses. Mm. doctors and also taking care of them and even people that take care of, of the streets people are the the cleaners the supermarket uh people they're also in many many cases women mm-hmm. um and i think that requires once again our uh envisioning of what kind of spaces we we produce uh from urban planning and urban design but also uh, a transformation of, of urban governance right so what is the role then of the state, the local government, the municipalities, of being able to provide those spaces for people. Mm-hmm. Many times in planning, they're completely absent. Uh, you know, you're absolutely right. And it kind of makes me wonder whether... So do you think we can use feminist approach to help us reinvent the idea of resilience and everything that is so problematic with it? Absolutely. Um, you know, I think... Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this whole concept of resilience is to be able to go back to normal as quickly as possible, right? To recover mm. from, from a hazard. But I think without taking care of our caregivers, that's virtually impossible, mm. right? We, we want to go back to being productive and our economic activities to be thriving. But uh, if you have 50% or more of the population, so it's not only women, it's also children and other vulnerable groups that are not able to recover as quickly, then you're severely limiting your chances to not only go back to normal, but to actually uh, thrive and and prosper. Mm -hmm. I guess it's like the, I've been thinking about recently the, the ways that resilience is 
is used and conceptualized. And, um, you know, to me, it still has a lot of potential as a concept, but, and Ksenia and I talked about this all the time, um, of just about how it has been used so much by those who have a neoliberal agenda to make their own ideas have a theoretical base or have justification. And often what we end up making resilient are systems which are very unjust and unequal, right? Yeah. I think it's just generally the problem there, right, is all this conceptual kind of malleable ideas that um, mm. theoretically are useful, but they can just be abused so easily. We, I mean, we can see the same with feminism now, right, in that mm-hmm. um, even the ideas of feminism have been turned into kind of a neoliberal tool, mm. um, which, is, which, which is scary to observe. It really mm. is. Yeah, and, and basically I would say um, a lot of... Words and then just become these empty vessels, right? So mm. sustainability. Mm. Uh, in urbanism as well, with scaling up and, and replicability, like all political yeah. incidents, like all those, you know, buzzwords that we have to put in whenever we're applying for a research grant. Mm. But then yeah. they, they really need to be rethought. Because um, they're many times either co opted or, or they become, um, as Jason said, like a tool. Uh, or as a means for, for the government to also be like, okay, so you're resilient, uh, no, to society or, or to a group of citizens. So, uh, and, and then mm-hmm. just not do anything about it. And, yeah. you know, like, mm-hmm. it, it's the same with, um, self-sufficiency and, 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 and self-built environments in, in what we see in the global south, uh, in, in informal peripheries. You know that there's a sense that if people can build their own homes, then, then the state should not be taking care of that. So, Balan, we also wanted to ask you about the Amazon and urban development. and. So when we look at the situation in the Amazon, we're obviously creating risks through the development status quo. And largely this is because there's some um, individuals and corporate interests that profit from the status quo. So what resistance um, is there on the ground there? And what do you think can and should be done to oppose this rolling paradigm of development, which is creating the risks that we say that we're trying to reduce, right? Yeah, well, there was this really fascinating uh, letter published in The Guardian a few weeks ago. And if you read it uh, by Nemonte Nenkino, she's a uh, uh, native uh, leader, female leader, living uh, mm. in Brazil. And, and she was denouncing this, uh, how Western civilization or white men or the other um, is basically taking over the Amazon rainforest and completely destroying it in yeah. a few few decades. Uh, yeah. And to meet the needs of that other civilization, not theirs. Also, we have uh, extractivism at all levels, um, deforestation, illegal mining, and, and also uh, grazing. Like I don't think if you ever visit the Amazon, you, you're able to eat meat ever again after witnessing what's happening there. Mm. Um, but what I find to be really interesting coming from more of a urban uh, sphere is that many times you, you, you create this dichotomy, right? So between uh, native inhabitants of small dispersed tribes in the Amazon 
and uh, Western civilization, like the other. But I think it's really interesting to see what's happening on the ground at the urban scale in cities in the Amazon. Because the citizens there are somewhere in between. They're not you know, dispersed communities, uh, but they do still hold uh, this spiritual sense and, and reverence towards the Amazon rainforest, mm. but they're also connected and globalized and they also are also consumers and, and, and it's, uh, I think the, the history behind Amazonian cities is quite fascinating. It's quite recent history. Uh, they became what they are at the beginning of the 20th century with the rubber boom. So from the very beginning, uh, cities and extraction in the Amazon are closely linked. And many of those cities uh, basically experience like economic booms that are directly linked to extractivism uh, and then uh, economic fallouts when, whenever that extractivism is over. So we saw mm. that with the rubber boom in Iquitos, where I work, uh, they're now experiencing that because of a lack of oil extraction. Uh, but that is also very much linked to exploitation and, and nearly uh, slavery levels uh, with communities, especially at the beginning of the 20th century. But it also creates like this new uh, or novel conundrum uh, at the urban level. Like, I, I don't even know if I have an answer for, should we even have cities in the <laughs> Amazon rainforest? Mm -hmm. um, they've been inhabited by dispersed uh, communities or very small social groups. Some of them, most of the time, move around because uh, they, they, they knew the forest. They know it's a, a living organism. Like you have floods, you have changing river courses. So our urban models of, you know, uh, sedentary grids for electricity, for water, for sanitation don't really work in an environment that is constantly changing. Mm. Um, so, but we, we cannot, I cannot be someone that's okay. So, probably the system's not working. So, this just don't have cities in the Amazon. You really have millions of people living there. So, uh, that's a kind of extraction that's not really well, uh, I, I guess, researched. Um, or I'm, I'm really interesting, interested in researching because it exposes at the local level in the Amazon what is happening at a more global scale. Uh, and brings back all these terrifying hazards towards the, the rainforest uh, on the ground, right? So what's happening there, uh, they become uh, the other as well, but living in the Amazon. So I think we, we, I don't know, I don't have an answer for how exactly those cities should be. That's part of my PhD and I think yeah. uh, my lifelong research, like how do you produce then mm models for Amazonian cities that are more than resilient, I would say, just like not as damaging to the environment in which they are located. I think there's such an interesting point you're making there in that very often when we talk about resilience of the cities and urban spaces, all we think is the impact of the environment, right, on the cities and sort of blaming nature for it, um, and which is, of course, 
really problematic, and this is this is why we really have the podcast. Um, but in in fact, we never asked the question: what what impact do we put on the environment? And uh, yeah, so thank you for raising that. That is something that I think needs highlighting and discussing more. So staying within the urban environments and sort of going back to what you said right in the beginning when um, Jason asked you about the inequalities is the question of the spatial justice, right? And again, Jason and I kind of talk quite a lot about this. Um, so there's been this weird belief, particularly among the economists, I suppose, unsurprisingly, right, who believe in growth um, as, as a definition of GDP kind of growth, in that um, informal settlements are part of urban growth, right? And the spatial justice or injustice that um, informal settlements bring with them are kind of part of the normal urban development. And what are your views on that? What are your experiences from your work? You know, how do we bring spatial justice to the conversation about disasters? Uh, well, I would, my first comment would be, I don't think informal settlements are a part uh, of mm. urban growth. I think they're the main, <laughs> right? It's like asking, like uh, there was this recent study uh, in Peru by economists, of course, uh, that of course. <laughs> said that like, in the last two decades, uh, cities in Peru have grown by 50% in size and 90% of that was informal. Right. So I don't think we can, yeah, it's not a matter of including informality into these courses, but I would say like, really rethinking our discourses and our mm. ways of analyzing things because mm -hmm. they are the the vast majority uh, i would say at least uh, in the global in the global south mm. um i think also there's this uh, very interesting discussion of what is in informality right because rather than this dichotomy of informal informal um, i would say that there's this spectrum uh, as there's always some degree of formality in informality, as we see when uh, informal settles, settlers know the rules they're playing extremely well and the process that they have to, mm -hmm. to do and follow to be able to get uh, land titles. And also in informality, we see a lot of informality uh, in cases of corruption or you know, uh, seeing ways in which you can bend over the rules for personal benefits. Uh, so I, I, I'm guessing I'm, I'm digressing a little bit, but I think like the whole concept of what informality is mm -hmm. uh, and, and how then that plays with spatial transformations needs to be uh, carefully thought about. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I guess in, in what you were saying about spatial justice uh, and, and informality, uh, I think it's, it's that, that there's a lack of recognition that uh, we should be paying more attention, right? So on, on, on an urban governance and planning level, we still use tools for planning that represent or reflect a formal environment. Uh, and, and we're seeing a lot of how those, I would say, uh, recommendations or new sayings of, I don't know, the 15-minute city or playing with how to control like the super blocks in Barcelona, all of those models that may perhaps work in Europe or in North America, and that they're just being repeated in, in the global South, do not really work because they don't respond to a reality which is majoritarily just uh, informal. 
Mm. Mm. Um, but I will also say that I think we're reaching a breaking point, at least from my experience working in, in, in Peru, right? Because informality and, and urban growth are many times also linked to social mobilization. So we saw in the 70s and the 80s, large groups of people just occupying uh, land and then working with the government to, to get the land titles. Uh, but mm. as many things that I think has been now co-opted, right? So the, the right of housing or the right for land is now used, I would, I would argue, by the government as a populist approach uh, with assistentialism. Mm. So instead of really improving what's already there, which lacks services, lacks good mobility and access to to infrastructure, they just allow the urban sprawl, urban growth to continue to happen because it's easier to give a piece of paper with a land title than actually offer and produce cities mm. beyond land titles. So I think um, in that sense, spatial justice has to go hand in hand with a restructuring of our governance structure. That's so interesting about, um, you know, using the, like the people just know that they should have a right to live in like healthy, safe environment, right? And so governments are able to use that again to transfer responsibility away from themselves because mm -hmm. they can use mm -hmm. that that idea of a right to to land as a kind of bargaining chip to avoid responsibility for building the city i think that's so interesting to think about yeah and we see that also in terms of, of hazard and reconstructions right so uh, another example from from peru what that we see today with spontaneous community kitchens that are appearing because of food insecurity people are not able to to buy food individually so they get together mm. uh, rather than recognizing the potential that that has uh, of, of mobilizing people of social organization of people uh, having the capacity to take care of themselves and and, and grow that into something more than just a provision of, of food Right, uh, going back again to care activities and how can then that be transformed into more just, uh, but also caring uh, urban spaces. The response of the government is just to give donations of food, but is that sustainable over time? Is that really producing resilient citizens? In the care manifesto is it's really highlighting this this fact that you're you're pointing out Belen, about um mm -hmm. like the you know we, we need to highlight the solidarity that people have and the capacity we have to care for each other um beyond like our our family unit or our our, our um close friends but even for just for all humanity um mm -hmm. but at the same time and non-humans as well and non-humans, right? And um, yeah, yeah. but at the same time, we need to critique the systems that um, cause certain needs and um, lack and 
uh, injustices that take away our access to certain things and and make that make the that that carrying necessary sometimes right yeah absolutely um i think uh, going back to to another buzzword of of scaling up uh (laughs) i think if those caring and solidarity practices are not uh not only recognized but um aided by by the government to be able to scale up then there's i would argue some limited chances of, of doing that especially when you see going back to the community kitchens that at the moment they cannot afford to even have with they're like living on a an emergency situation mm. if the government gave them more resources not only financial but like uh, programs uh proper infrastructure for them to to do the cooking, to do other activities, then I would argue that they can they can prosper, right? So mm-hmm. it's also a, a, a I would guess uh, a right of how our resources distributed nowadays and what is prioritized. Uh, but I, I think um, that relationship between society and, and and the state, you know, its levels is what's need to be rethought. Uh, what we're seeing now the, the power of, of social mobilization with what's happening in Chile with the constitution. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, I, I would argue that that constitution would should uh, see the ways in which that in which that redistribution of resources can happen. Um, otherwise, I would say social mobilization uh, reaches a certain limit beyond the neighborhood scale. How then you can you govern the commons at, at a broader metropolitan scale? I think uh, that becomes harder. Yeah. yeah. Wow, I think we've managed to unpack quite a lot of difficult ideas and concepts in this thirty minutes today. So thank you so much, Valen, for really challenging us and for kind of bringing so much to the discussion. It's great, great to have you. Thank you very much uh, to both you, Ksenia and Jason. Um, I'm Really looking forward to hearing the next, the other episodes in this season. And it's always a pleasure to discuss these issues with, uh, with you. Well, thank you all for being with us today. And before you go, a few quick reminders about how you can stay connected with the podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at DisastersDecon. The podcast is available on all the major platforms. Please download, share, and most importantly, subscribe. And if you haven't already done this, we really appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. This will help us to continue making content for you. You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed. And don't forget, disasters are not natural. See you next time. You have been listening to Ksenia, Jason, and me, Belinda Maison, on Disasters Deconstructed Podcast. <laughs>